Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline at the top of the page is Supervisors' OK Budget Elements by Benjamin Fisher. A divided Dubuque County Board of Supervisors plans to set the county's property tax levy rate for next fiscal year and forego several priority capital projects, but declined to reduce the levy rate even nominally. For the fiscal year beginning July 1, the combined rural and countywide property tax levy rate for Dubuque County would be $9.20 per $1,000 of taxable property value, just at as it has been since July 1, 2023. The new budget would pay for some marquee projects, a new 911 communications center, software upgrades for law enforcement, a high-speed internet fiber network, and more, plus substantial, although disputed, raises for county employees. It does not include requested funds for the other county needs, including replacing the county courthouse's disruptive HVAC system, and some pressing facility upgrades for the Secondary Roads Department. The budget also would include a 5.85% compensation increase to the county's non-bargaining employees overall. It would include a 60% rollback on pay raises for elected officials and deputies as they were recommended by the County Compensation Board, putting those raises at 40% of the ask. Positions increase and increases would be auditor, 4% to $104,047. County Attorney, 3.2% to $167,643. Recorder, 3.2% to $101,862. Sheriff, 7.6% to $159,115. Supervisors, 3.2% to 56,383 treasurer 4.4% 4%, 4% to $103,536 this would fund what we've spent these last months talking about said Dubuque County budget director Stella Rundy and it would leave us with about 28% of our fund balances that's important say if we had some type of emergency situation it's also for cash flow purposes while the supervisors rarely vote along party lines, Monday's meeting saw uniform two-to-one votes on the budget's details, with Republican Supervisors Wayne Kenneker and Harley Potter for, and Democratic Supervisor Anne McDonough against. Kenneker and Potter rejected McDonough's preference to pay for some of the 911 Communications Center project with debt and her proposal to reduce the levy rate by a few cents. The latter debate ended with barbs traded between Kenneker and McDonough. The proposed property taxes collected countywide would be $5.62 per every $1,000 of taxable property value. The rural basic fund would be $3.58 per $1,000 of taxable property value. Due to the average countywide taxable valuation growth of 5.945% via last year's reassessments, the Iowa Legislature's 2023 property tax reform required a maximum levy reduction in multiple county levies. 
so county officials only had their general supplemental levy to adjust. To reach the same overall property tax levy as in the current fiscal year, the Board of Supervisors raised general supplemental by 14.65 cents per $1,000 of valuation. The budget would earn the county $37.86 million in property tax revenues, up by $2.39 million from the current fiscal year's estimates, but $506,689 less than if the state had not reduced the county's maximum levy rate. The budget would use the $2.6 million left in the county's allotment from the American Rescue Plan Act to cover most of the county's portion of the 911 Communications Center. The rest of that project would be paid for out of the county's long-term capital projects fund, along with the $1.2 million software upgrade for the Sheriff's Department. McDonough proposed a more strategic use of debt to fund the 911 Center that would have allowed the county to draw from the remaining ARPA funds differently, in part because debt does not exempt tax increment finance beneficiaries the way other tax levying does. I'd like to see public safety projects paid by everybody, she said. But Potoff opposed turning to debt if the county could fund its budget otherwise. Going into debt service is going to raise the levy, he said. I don't want to raise the levy. I think we have the ability to pay for this with the funds we have. If in the future we might have to have debt service, well, that's next year. The budget also allocated the rest of ARPA, which had to be done by the end of this calendar year. The proposed budget leaves more than $1 million in the county's long-term capital projects fund. McDonough objected to collecting that revenue while at the same time not funding proposed capital projects. So she proposed reducing the overall county levy. We're not doing the major capital improvement projects, she said. We're not doing the things that conservation wanted in the conservation department's long-term master plan. If the taxpayers are not being enriched by projects they wish to have, then we can bring it down. But if it's a small decrease, it matters. But Potoff opposed that due to the Board of Supervisors having to increase their levy by 20 cents this current fiscal year after cutting it by 39 cents the year before. Both were reactions to state legislature reforms impacting county budgets. He said he believed county residents would understand that the county's expenses had increased more than the expected increase in revenues. Kenneker criticized McDonough's proposal to lower the rate as a political stunt. If you really wanted to do something meaningful, it would be to reduce the expenses, true savings, not political savings, for the readers of the newspaper, Kenneker said. Speaking to Potoff, McDonough said that Kenneker did not understand strategic budgeting. The conversations I've had about balanced funding is also in response to what projects were doing at the time, so everyone is paying their fair share, McDonough said. I learned that from you, Harley, when we were negotiating on the 911 Center. I'm sorry Wayne doesn't get it, that it doesn't have to be black and white. The Board of Supervisors will formally vote on the final budget on Monday, March 3rd. The next story is titled, Event Targets Student Substance Abuse, by Elizabeth Kelsey. 
Dubuque community school officials, local health experts, and law enforcement officers told a group of about 50 people at Washington Middle School on Tuesday that education and support are critical in helping students struggling with substance abuse. Punishment is maybe not the best answer, but how can we support those who have been using and how can we support them in quitting, said Vicki Gassman, Maternal Child Adolescent Coordinator with the Unity Point Health Visiting Nurse Association. Gassman was one of several featured speakers at the latest event in the district's recently launched Community Education Series. The free Tuesday evening event, centered on youth substance abuse, was open to parents, guardians, and other adults who support youth in 4th through 12th grades. We know this is an important topic, said Mimi Holsinger, Dubuque Community Schools Director of Behavior and Learning Supports. I don't think there's anyone sitting in this room who can say that substance abuse hasn't touched their life, someone in their family, or someone they know. Gassman shared statistics and law around the use of vaping and tobacco products, along with potential negative health consequences of usage and popular products among youth. Manufacturers make them look like everyday products, Gassman said, showing photos of inhalers or highlighters that mask vape cartridges. I was recently in a high school and saw a kid literally using a vaping type of clothing in the classroom. Gassman told attendees that signs of vape usage can include a sweet, fruity, or minty smell on a student's clothes or in their room, since the e-cigarettes come in a variety of flavors. Other signs include behavior changes and secretive actions, changes in eating habits or weight loss, increased thirst, dry mouth, and frequent absences or requests to use the restroom during class. We never can tell for sure if somebody is using, but we can certainly start the conversation, she said. Gassman mentioned youth-focused cessation programs, including My Life, My Quit, and peer-to-peer programs like Iowa Students for Tobacco Education and Prevention as positive steps to help prevent and address youth substance abuse. Corporal Brian Woolweber and Investigator Chad Lightson from Dubuque Drug task force discussed other types of drugs students might use, from marijuana to methamphetamine to cocaine, along with the type of packaging in which they are often sold. There's no kid too young to be using these, and they're going to hide the drugs from you, said lights into the crowd. The drug paraphernalia is going to be more of your clue that you've got a problem in the house. After the presentation, attendees were invited to visit the school's gymnasium to speak with organizations like Area Substance Abuse Council, uh, Brain Health Now, Hillcrest Family Services, and Riverview Center, among others. Attendees could also experience the effects of alcohol, drugs, and even sleep deprivation by wearing simulation goggles and attempting to drive a pedal cart around a series of cones. Meanwhile, Dubuque Police Department officers showed attendees a variety of seemingly ordinary products like bottled drinks, canned and boxed foods, and personal care products that contain compartments or other ways to hide drugs. A lot of these you'd never guess, said school resource officer Brandon Gudenkoff as he picked up the insole of a tennis shoe and revealed the small compartment on its underside that could hold pills. 
Attendees Susan and Matt Kevin of Dubuque have three children in second, sixth, and eighth grades in the Dubuque district. You don't ever suspect it could be your kid, but we wanted to just come to the event and get a little bit of insight to educate ourselves and our kids, Susan said. Matt described the evening as eye-opening. I definitely did not expect to see the extent to which society makes it possible for kids to do something like this, and how convincing some of these fakes are, he said. If parents don't educate themselves on the way some of these things look, it'll be easy to get fooled by them. The last story from the front page is, East Dubuque teacher touched many lives. Bill Rison died Saturday at age 55 by Maya Bond. Dateline, East Dubuque, Illinois. Bill Rison was more than just a teacher and a coach. His friendly face and passion for life, along with his teaching and coaching abilities, made him a pillar of East Dubuque. Bill of East Dubuque died Friday, excuse me, February 24th at 55 years old. At the time of his death, he was the industrial tech teacher and assistant football coach at East Dubuque High School and athletic director at East Dubuque Junior High School. During his time in the district, he also coached baseball and taught fifth grade and junior high literature. Bill leaves behind a legacy of kindness and had plenty of love to give, his family members told the Telegraph Herald Tuesday. You never ended the conversation without him telling you he loved you, his sister Jody Winchell said. Bill's family agreed he was a storyteller and jokester at heart. His son Nolan Rison said everyone knew when his dad was in the room. His constant jokes, stories, and infectious giggle made him the center of attention in most places. Anyone that knows him knows that he tells jokes constantly, Nolan said. Working with kids, he has dad jokes that he would always tell. I could get a text from my dad, and more often than not, he just got a new joke he wants to tell me. Bill's sibling said he was also passionate about teaching, describing the career as a calling. They said bed Bill went out of his way to ensure students' needs were met and all children felt included. Bill was excited to have recently stepped into his role as industrial tech teacher during the COVID-19 pandemic and was building the program to, to provide more opportunities for students looking to pursue a trade. I think what's amazing about my husband as a teacher and as a person is that even the kids that struggle, who don't fit in, he made sure they knew he cared about them, Kara Rison said. He actually tried harder with those kids. Nolan said his dad absolutely loved his job and went the extra mile to support every student. He had so many students that called him their favorite teacher, Nolan said. He touched a lot of lives. East Dubuque Superintendent T.J. Potts echoed that sentiment. He was a warrior, and he just represented all the attributes that we want our kids to have, Potts said. We talk about the warrior way, and he just led the warrior way on a daily basis. East Dubuque High School and junior high principal Darian Sirani said Bill was willing to do anything for anybody and always had a great sense of humor. He told dad jokes on a daily basis, whether it was in his junior high literature classroom or even when he became the industrial tech teacher. You could tell that he enjoyed what he was doing, Sirianni said. Bill was also a world-class coach, his sibling said. It helped that he was also a die-hard sports fan, 
mainly of the Chicago Cubs and Chicago Bears, and would take any opportunity to either watch those teams play or, at the very least, discuss them with anyone. His ability to coach stands out to me, and not just coaching sports, but just coaching in life. He coached my boys playing sports like as far as individual lessons with how to pitch or how to tackle. He was teaching them life lessons along the way about how to be a hard worker and be respectful and on time, Bill's sister, Jerry Lou Sertle said. Bill's younger brother, Brian, said when he and Jerry Lou were young, Bill would convince his parents to let them stay home with him so they could attend Chicago Cubs games. He often used the strategy of claiming to already have the tickets, saying they would go to waste if they didn't let the kids stay home. We'd get in the car to go, and he'd lean over and say, I don't have tickets. Don't tell Mom and Dad, Brian laughed. And we'd go to Chicago for the day, and he would get tickets somehow, and that was a frequent thing. Despite living in different states now, both Brian and Bill's other brother, Jake, said they kept in close contact with Bill, messaging back and forth, usually on a daily basis. I don't think he realized how much we truly looked up to him, Jake said. Bill's daughter, Casey Burrell, said he helped make her childhood fun. He involved his kids in every activity he could, she said. He really just made sure that we were a part of his life and brought us absolutely anywhere with him that we could go, she said. Casey said it's difficult to put into words how much her father meant to her, but it has been heartening to hear of his community-wide impact through the stories of others. It certainly eases the pain, and it's nice to see that not only was he there for us, he was there for every single student and every single player that he had, she said. Now turning to page two, the Dubuque and Tri-State page. At the top of the page, the title is DRA Discusses Schmidt Island Plans, Decreased January Gaming Revenue by Elizabeth Kelsey. As renovations continue at Q Casino, officials with the nonprofit license holder for the city's two casinos are looking ahead to future growth. At a monthly meeting Tuesday, Alex Dixon, president and CEO of Q Casino and DRA, shared with board members various aspects of a new development plan for Chaplain Schmidt Island. An update on the plan, drafted by RDG Planning and Design, was presented to Dubuque City Council members last, last month. It includes proposed developments on the island ranging from apartments, a boardwalk, and an observation tower to ecological restoration of the island and an expanded I'm On arena. Dixon said Tuesday that DRA is not currently asking for funding or launching any of these developments immediately, but planning is ongoing to refine them. We know generally where we would like things to be laid out broadly, he said. It's a question of, with the limited amount of resources, what do you do first? How much do things cost, and how do you set priorities? He said he envisions DRA as the engine that funds development on Schmidt Island moving forward with infrastructure like bridges and streets owned by the city of Dubuque, but hospitality and management provided by DRA. That kind of public-private partnership, he said, is displayed in the new management agreement for I'm on Arena, which places Schmidt Island Development Corporation in charge of day-to-day operations at the facility. 
the city retains ownership of the arena and will pay for any major maintenance or capital improvements, along with an annual fixed fee of $100,000. In many ways, we're helping facilitate, Dixon said. That doesn't necessarily mean we are going to operate everything. Some development on the island is already well underway, with Q Casino in the midst of an $80 million five-phase renovation. In a construction update at Tuesday's meeting, DRA officials said work is ongoing in the casino's rotunda, sports bar, showroom, and lower casino, among other areas. Construction in the casino's lower level means patrons are utilizing a temporary gaming space, which contributed to a decline in year-over-year revenue last month, according to Q Casino officials. Q Casino generated $2,807,378 in gaming revenue in January, down by 27.6% from $3,877,052 generated in January 2023 and down by about 12% from what the casino had budgeted, according to Chief Operating and Finance Officer Brian Rakestraw. In addition to the ongoing renovations, Rakestraw attributed the drop to adverse winter weather last month. Mother Nature in January was not very nice, and that was a major contributor to January's gross gaming revenue, Rakestraw said at the meeting. I can tell you that as far as February, we are very confident we are going to make up everything we lost in January, plus some. For its part, Diamond Joe reported $5,532,362 in gaming revenue in January, nearly identical to the $5,550,827 the casino reported during the same period the previous year. Next is tri-state pharmacies face challenges after, after cyber attack targets insurance company by Maya Bond. Pharmacies in this tri-state area are still experiencing some difficulties processing their customers' insurance one week after United Healthcare fell victim to a cyber attack. The company announced on February 22nd that it's Change Healthcare Business, which routes claims to the correct insurance company and back to pharmacies, had been compromised and a hacker gained access to some of its information technology systems. The attack caused problems nationwide for pharmacies trying to process prescriptions through insurance providers. No customers are going without their medication, pharmacists said, but some local pharmacies are incurring additional financial risk by continuing to fill prescriptions. Jesse Schaefer, a pharmacist at Osterhaus Pharmacy in Makokata, Iowa, said the problem has gotten better, but it's not fully resolved. There are still some customers whose prescriptions cannot be processed through their insurance company. Customers are not going without medication, though, Schaefer said. Patients need medications, and our conversation with patients is being upfront about their portion of their copay might change based on when their insurance company's computer system comes back up, Schaefer said. She said Osterhaus Pharmacy is charging customers what their copay typically is while informing customers that because an accurate cost from the insurance company is not currently available, the copay amount they may change once the system is back up. Eric Nightingale, whose family owns Nightingale Drug, 
said all Nightingale drug locations have been affected in the last week. After change healthcare went down, Nightingale's location switched to a different company to process its insurance claims, which resolved most of the issues. However, he said some hiccups continue to occur. Nightingale said every customer is receiving their medication, but he is concerned because pharmacies are not being fully reimbursed for prescriptions filled during the outage. It's kind of scary when you're dispensing medication, he said. Some of these are very expensive drugs, and you need to make sure that you're going to get reimbursed for stuff that you're dispensing. A week after the cyber attack, Change Healthcare is still not up and running. In an emailed statement, a spokesperson for United Health Group said the company has worked to ensure customers have access to necessary medication. We also continue to work closely with law enforcement and a number of third parties on this attack against Change Healthcare systems. We appreciate the partnership and hard work of all our relevant stakeholders to ensure providers and pharmacists have effective workarounds to serve their patients as systems are being restored to normal, the statement said. Now turning to the news in brief column. Western Dubuque administrator named next principal of Kennedy Elementary. A Western Dubuque High School administrator will serve as the principal of a Dubuque Elementary School. Rich Hatcher will serve as principal of Kennedy Elementary School starting in the 2024-25 school year, pending approval by the school board at its meeting in March, a press release states. Hatcher will succeed Nicholas Hess, who recently was named the next principal of Marshall Elementary School. The release states that Hatcher currently is assistant principal at Western Dubuque High School, a role he has held since 2017. He previously worked as a student needs facilitator at Jefferson Middle School in Dubuque from 2014 to 2017 and was an instructional coach and talented gifted facilitator at Jefferson from 2007 to 2014. Prior to his time at Jefferson, Hatcher was a science and geography teacher at Williams Intermediate School and F.L. Smart Middle School, respectively, in Davenport, Iowa. Rich is an energetic, relationship-driven administrator who thrives on building connections with families, student, and staff, Dubuque Community School Superintendent Amy Hawkins said in the release. We are thrilled to welcome him back to the Dubuque Community School District, and we are excited for all the ways he will bring this role at Kennedy. Next is Closed Dubuque Eatery announces plans to reopen. A Dubuque eatery that closed in 2023 could reopen later this year. An announcement on the Facebook page for Rusty Taco, 3333 Asbury Road, states that the restaurant is coming back in 2024 better than ever and notes a planned spring reopening. The announcement states that the location will open under new ownership and management and that additional information will be forthcoming concerning hiring and opening date, which has not been set. The Dubuque location originally opened in September 21 and announced it was closing in January 23. Questions concerning this week's announcement were referred to Rusty Taco corporate officials who did not immediately respond to the Telegraph Herald.
Rusty Taco, named after founder Rusty Fenton, opened its first location in Dallas in 2010. The restaurant now has 30 locations nationwide. Dubuque man sentenced to three years for weapons offense. A Dubuque man who possessed multiple firearms, including one that had a device to convert it into a fully automatic weapon, was sentenced this week to three years in federal prison. Jacquison Z. Grubb, 21, was given the prison term in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids after pleading guilty in September to possessing a firearm as a marijuana user, according to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa. U.S. District Court Judge C.J. Williams also ordered Grubb to serve a three-year term of supervised release after he is released from prison. There is no parole in the federal system. The release states that Grubb also possessed a personally made firearm known as a ghost gun. The court found Grubb possessed a firearm in connection with the offense of possession of marijuana with intent to deliver. And this last police report. The Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Department reported the following. Colton J. Hillary, 32, of Asbury, Iowa, was arrested at 3.22 a.m. Tuesday in Piasta, Iowa, on a warrant charging forgery. You are listening to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 28, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, we'll turn to today's obituaries. William F. Rison, East Dubuque, Illinois. William Bill Fred Rison, 55, of East Dubuque, passed away from complications from pneumonia at 8.56 p.m. on Saturday, February 24, 2024, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, Iowa City, Iowa. A celebration of life service will be held from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Friday, March 1, 2024, at the East Dubuque High School and Junior High, 200 Park Lane Drive. We ask that everyone wear warrior blue to honor him. Joanne S. Collins-Stewart, McGregor, Iowa. Joanne S. Collins-Stewart, 84, of McGregor, died on Tuesday, February 6, 2024. Visitation will be held from 6 to 8 p.m. Friday, March 1st, at Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service in McGregor. Services will take place at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, at the First Congregational United Church of Christ in McGregor. Doris C. Virtue, Galena, Illinois. Doris C. Virtue, 96, of Galena, died on Monday, February 26, 2024. Services will take place at 11.30 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Galena. Furlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Daniel L. Collins, Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Daniel L. Collins, 41, of Hazel Green, died on Monday, February 26, 2024. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cuba City is assisting the family. Gerald Stumpner, North St. Paul, Minnesota. Gerald Stumpner, 86, of Balltown, Iowa, passed away February 24, 2024, at his home in Minnesota after a four-year battle with cancer. No visitation or service. Bear Funeral Home is assisting the family. Kathleen J. Otting, Earlville, Iowa. 
Kathleen J. Otting, 84, of Earlville, died on Monday, February 26, 2024. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Earlville, where a massive Christian burial will follow in earnment and take place in the church cemetery. Leonard Miller Funeral Home of Manchester is assisting the family. Mary S. Habel Mary S. Havel, 70, of Dubuque, Iowa, passed away on February 24, 2024. Friends and family may visit from 2 to 4 p.m. on Friday, March 1, 2024, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. A funeral service will begin at 4 p.m. on Friday at the funeral home, with Deacon John Stearman officiating. Christine M. Jackson, Edgewood, Iowa Christine M. Jackson, 70, of Edgewood, died on Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd, at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Edgewood. Services will take place at 10.30 a.m. Monday, March 4th, at Edgewood Bible Church. In Ermond will be in Edgewood Cemetery. Marjorie C. Drawn Marjorie C. Drawn of Monona, 95 years old, died on Tuesday, January 23, 2024. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 1st, at Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Monona. Services will take place at 1 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Monona. Funeral Services Dorland Cliff, Bloomington, Wisconsin. Visitation from 9 to 11 a.m. today. Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory, Lancaster. Service at 11 a.m. today at the funeral home. Jack A. Edens, Galena, Illinois. Visitation, 9 to 3 p.m. Saturday, March 9th. Crossroads Community Church, Galena. Kenneth J. Halley, Dyersville, Iowa. Visitation, 2 to 7 p.m. today and from 9 to 10 a.m. Thursday, February 29th. Kramer Funeral Home, Dyersville. Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. Thursday, St. Boniface Church, New Vienna. Eileen Leland, Dubuque. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday, March 9th, St. Luke's United Methodist Church. Memorial Service, 11 a.m. March 9th at the church. Nicholas R. Lucy, Dubuque. Visitation, 3 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 29th, and from 9.30 to 10.15 a.m. Friday, March 1st, St. Raphael Cathedral. Service, 10.30 a.m. Friday at the church. William R. Peake, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, March 1st, Calvary Community Church, Lancaster. Service at 11 a.m. Friday at the church. Mary Kent Pearson, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. Wake and Funeral Mass, 10 a.m. today, St. Joseph's Church, Hazel Green. Harold D. Schaefer, Dubuque. Visitation, 2 to 5.45 p.m. today, Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Service, 8 p.m. today at the funeral home. Karen A. Stant, Dubuque. Visitation, 9 to 10 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, First Presbyterian Church. Service, 10 a.m. Saturday at the church. And Roger B. Starrett, Bloomington, Wisconsin. Visitation, 3 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 1st, Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory, Bloomington. 
and from 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, Bible Baptist Church, Prairie du Chien. Service, 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Now, turning to the sports page, we're going to the local calendar first and today's events. Men's College Tennis, Dubuque versus Bridgewater College at Hilton Head, South Carolina, 10 a.m. Women's College Tennis, Dubuque versus Bridgewater College at Hilton South, Hilton Head, South Carolina, at 10 a.m. In college softball, Dubuque versus Cabrini, Clermont, Florida, at 11 a.m. Women's College Basketball, Heart of America Conference Tournament Quarterfinals, Central Methodist, at Clark, at 6 p.m. In men's college volleyball, Loris at Illinois Wesleyan at 7 p.m. Then, on the air today, in men's college basketball, Providence at Marquette at 6 p.m. on FS1. Auburn at Tennessee at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. Northwestern at Maryland at 6 p.m. BTN. Oklahoma at Iowa State, 7 p.m. ESPN Plus, Drake at UIC, 7 p.m., ESPN Plus, Seton Hall at Creighton, 8 p.m., FS1, Minnesota at Illinois, 8 p.m., BTN, Alabama at Ole Miss, 8 p.m., on ESPN2, Oregon State at Oregon, 10 p.m., on FS1. In women's college basketball, Michigan at Ohio State, 6 p.m. on Peacock. Iowa State at Kansas State at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN+. And Iowa at Minnesota at 8 p.m. on Peacock. NBA basketball, Pelicans at Pacers, 6.30 p.m. on ESPN. Cavaliers at Bulls, 7 p.m on NBCSCHI, and Lakers at Clippers at 9 p.m. on ESPN. In NHL hockey, the Blues are at the Oilers at 7.30 p.m. on TNT. And on the LPGA Tour, HSBC Women's World Championship, 8.30 p.m. on the Golf Channel. Now I'll go back to the front page and Boys Prep Basketball. State-bound senior is the headline. Dubuque senior 49, Pleasant Valley 46 in the Iowa Class 4A substate final by Tom Gregory. Nasty Nation in its neon garb wasn't the only thing that could be seen from miles away. The writing was on the walls for this one for 364 days. And the sequel was even better than the original, at least for Dubuque senior. Seniors headed back to the state tournament for the ninth time in school history as the sixth-ranked Rams settled a score or two with number nine-ranked Pleasant Valley in a 49-46 nail-biting win in Tuesday's Class 4A Substate 5 final at Hempstead's Moody Gymnasium. A potential rematch had been on their mind ever since Pleasant Valley ousted senior in last year's Substate Championship. The meeting prior to that between the two schools was a Pleasant Valley victory at the 2016 state tournament. We learned a lot from that game last year, said seniors Tevin Schultz, who led the way with 20 points. We're a lot stronger after that loss, and we were so focused tonight. 
Hearing the student section, Nasty Nation, and seeing them in neon really gets us fired up. It does a lot more than you think. It's just great support. Senior overcame a five-point halftime deficit, and the chance for Des Moines started the moment PV's Caden Rubble was off the mark on a three-point attempt with two seconds left. As they had all year, the Rams leaned on their suffocating defense. Senior blocked 10 shots on the night and held Pleasant Valley's leading point scorer, Coy Kipper, scoreless. We knew we had to stop Kipper. He killed us last year, senior coach Wendell Eimers said. He dominated against Prairie the other night, so we locked in on him. So proud of that. The opening minutes, probably as expected, was a contrast in styles. Senior pounded the paint, Schultz and Josh Brower with buckets and Jacob Williams drawing multiple fouls and co- converting the free throws. The Spartans, meanwhile, with a three-pointer from Rubel, were content to earn their stripes from further out. Things went back and forth until Pleasant Valley, which fell short of its eighth trip to state and closed the books at 17-6, and six, pulled ahead with four straight makes and a 9-3 to three run. Drake Mettinger gave Senior a boost off the bench, scoring the Rams' final five points of the period as Senior trailed 14-11 after one. Schultz single-handedly pulled Senior back in the second quarter, hitting three straight shots from inside. The super sophomore drilled a three-pointer to reclaim the lead for Senior, 22-21, with one minute and 57 seconds left before the break. But the Spartans stayed hot from outside to take their biggest lead of the game into halftime, 27-22. Three of Pleasant Valley's five field goals in the second came from three-point land, two by Carter Onquist. Senior made its first six back baskets after halftime to pull back in front, but the Rams could not pull too far ahead as PV's David Gorsline popped two of the Spartans' three third-quarter three-pointers. Schultz gave Senior its biggest lead, 38-34, converting an and one with one minute and 30 seconds left in the third. The Spartans weren't going down easy, though. Ma- Max Mazvalski scored seven of PV's final nine points in the final quarter, including a three-point play that tied things at 42 with three minutes and 54 seconds left, and a bucket at the 209 mark to make it 44 all. But Nick Kennedy scored Senior's last two baskets before Rubel's last second miss sent Nasty Nation and all other Ram fans into hysteria. We had to do something. I had to do something, said the 12th grader Kennedy. We couldn't go out like that again to them. At halftime, we really came together and settled down. We were all like, we got this. We overcame the adversity of the first half. Feels really great. This marks the seventh iteration of Rams that Imers has piloted to Wells Fargo Arena. We played two unbelievable quarters of basketball there in the second half, Imers said, at both ends of the floor. We were just really, really good. So proud of the kids. This is such a good group of guys. Now turning to girls prep basketball. Dyke New Hartford, 58, Cascade, 26. Iowa Class 2A State Quarterfinal. Top-ranked Wolverines Trip Cascade by Danny Miller. Dateline Des Moines. 
He's led his team to a state title. He's had them on the brink of another and racked up several other victories on Iowa's biggest stage. His proudest moment at Wells Fargo Arena might just be this year's brief stay, ironically following a 30-point first-round defeat. The piece of hardware we got here is probably always going to be my favorite out of the number we've been lucky enough to earn, Cascade head coach Mike Sconza said. Undersized, inexperienced, and devoid of all-state talent, the Cascade Cougars found themselves back in the state tournament for an 11th time overall and 10th under Sconza's leadership. It came after second regular season losses, the most for Sconza-led state team, and following a gut-wrenching grind through regionals. It wasn't expected, Sconza said. Tuesday's mountain was just a bit too steep. Class 2A ranked Dyke New Hartford ended the Cougars' run with a convincing 58-28 victory in a state quarterfinal contest at Wells Fargo Arena. The Wolverines have won the last three 2A state championships. They're the number one team in 2A, and you could probably make a case that they could play near the top of all four classes, no matter what, Sconza said. They were bigger, better, and more athletic. Cascade closed its season ranked 11th in 2A and with a record of 17-7. and Addison Frake had six points and ten rebounds, while Molly Rawling and Josie Matternack had eight points each for the Cougars. Dyke New Hartford advanced to Friday's semifinal round, needing just two wins to secure its fourth consecutive title. Marin Bixby had a game-high 25 points. Jaden Peterson and Peyton Peterson added nine each, and Izzy Norton had eight for the Wolverines. They're three-time champs. They've got size on us. They've got shooters, Matternack said. They don't just have one weapon. It's just so hard to guard every single weapon of theirs, especially with their ball movement. Cascade's patent 2-3 to three zone defense, the cornerstone for its success, functioned as designed for the most part on Tuesday. Dyke New Hartford just outshot it, specifically Bixby, who hit seven three-pointers. I was really happy with how we defended in the interior as best we could, Sconza said. We gave them the outside shot, but their ball movement killed us. We were trying to protect inside so much, it was hard to get outside on them. They're the real deal. They're a powerhouse. Frakes' game, opening jumper, gave Cascade its only lead of the night. Matternack followed with a layup to tie it at 4-4, but Dyke New Hartford responded with a 15-4 run to close out the opening quarter. Cascade held Dyke to just 5 for 17 from the floor in the second quarter, but mustered just two field goals of its own and was doomed by nearly a six-minute scoreless stretch. I think our team did keep fighting, Matternack said. They're just freak athletes. It's hard to keep up with that. Overall, we didn't stop. We didn't give up. We kept trying to score, and I'm proud of my team for doing that. Cascade trailed 34-12 to at halftime, and could climb no closer in the second half. We didn't play great. We didn't do what we wanted to come here and do, but no one thought we'd make it this far, Rawlings said. At the beginning of the season, I don't think any of us even really thought we would. We just had the heart and the drive and kept pushing. Now turning to more girls prep basketball, 
Solon 58, Wallert 47 in Iowa Class 3A State Quarterfinals. Golden Eagles Fight But Come Up Short by Danny Miller. Dateline Des Moines. It was a chase from the get-go. Finally, the Golden Eagles caught them, but the Spartans crossed the finish line first. Dubuque Wallert drew even midway through the third quarter after trailing, trailing by double digits twice in the first half. But Solon never permitted the lead to completely slip away as the Class 3A number 3 ranked Spartans ousted the 7th ranked Golden Eagles for the second straight year in the state quarterfinals, 58-47, to on Tuesday at Wells Fargo Arena. Solon held off a similar Wallet comeback attempt, beating the Golden Eagles 54-46 to in last year's quarterfinals. I'm very proud of this team, said Wallert Jr. forward Claire Lucan, who surpassed the 1,000 career point mark earlier this postseason. We had an amazing year, and we're just going to keep building off of this for next year. Wallert reached the state tournament for the 10th time overall and the third time in four seasons, but hasn't moved past the quarterfinal round since 2004. We just can't get that first round, Wallert coach Chris Spiegler said. We want to get over that little hump, but we have a lot of good kids coming back, and hopefully this gives them a little more drive to keep working harder. Third-seeded Solon advanced to Thursday's semifinal round against second-seeded Des Moines Christian. Olivia Donovan was a game-long spark plug for the Golden Eagles, totaling 13 points, 11 rebounds, and 5 steals, while Lucan finished with 15 points and 8 boards. Maria Freed, one of the three departing seniors, had 11 points. We had a great season, had some really good wins, but it's just unfortunate we couldn't come up with this one, said Freed, who is part of three state tournament teams over her four seasons. We really believed we could win, but they're a good team and they deserve it. University of Iowa commit Kelly Levin led a balanced Solon attack with 20 points. Haley Miller at 16 and Kobe Leitz had 11. Despite a turnover-plagued first quarter that saw the Golden Eagles Eagle shoot just 5 for 16 from the floor, Waller trailed just 18 to 11 after one quarter. Freed's three-pointer at four minutes and 48 seconds of the second brought Wallert within 23-20 to 20 before Levin knocked down two triples and a third from Miller to surge Solon back up 32-20. to 20. Donovan answered with a steal and a layup and added another steal in the final minute of the first half to set up a three-pointer by Claire Lucan. The Golden Eagles trailed just 34-29 to 29 at the break. This game is full of runs, Freed said. You just have to keep coming back, keep fighting. We think we always do that. This time, we couldn't quite pull it off, but we always fight, so I'm proud of that. The fight continued into the second half. Donovan and Lucan scored four points apiece to cap an 8-0 to spurt midway through the third quarter to draw the Golden Eagles even for the first time all game at 39-39. to that's why I love being on this team, Lucan said. We never fall back from a fight. Wallert seemed destined for its first lead, but baskets by Anna Quillen and a buzzer-beating corner three from Miller quickly shifted the momentum back in the Spartans' favor. Lucan's drive to the hoop at 5 minutes and 23 seconds of the fourth made it 48-43, but the Golden Eagles were held 
without a field goal for the next five-plus minutes and had just two total in the final frame. The Golden Eagles returned four of of their five starters next season. I'm very motivated and excited to get right back here, Lucan said. Hopefully we can hang a banner next year. We'll finish up with the local and area roundup. Here is Cuban's role in regional opener. Miles Hinderman caught fire from deep in the first half and Cuba City never looked back. Hinderman hit four of his five three-pointers in the first half and finished with 16 points. Trevor Van Natta also scored 16 points, and the fourth-seeded Cubans raced past Orford Parkview, 76-40, in a WIAA Division IV regional quarterfinal on Tuesday in Cuba City, Wisconsin. Cuba City made 13 of its 27 field goals from beyond the arc. Hudson Keeler added 15 points, and Gavin Vassen had 10 for Cuba City which advanced to host number 5 Lancaster in Friday's semifinal. Lancaster 55, Fenimore 40 at Lancaster, Wisconsin. The 5th-seeded Flying Arrows defeated the 12th-seeded Golden Eagles in a Division Four regional quarterfinal. Potosi 68, Wanawak Center 27 at Potosi, Wisconsin. Isaiah Groom scored 14 points. Aiden Upina added 12, and Dawson Weber had 11, and the top-seeded Chieftains routed Wanawak Center in a Division V regional quarterfinal. Patasi hosts number 8, Hillsborough, on Friday. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 28, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, Iowa Radio Reading org anytime. Thank you for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.